Welcome to Married to Politics. This podcast focuses on political topics that you accidentally end up discussing with someone way more knowledgeable than you. Except here, I save you the trouble by discussing politics accidentally on purpose. I'm Sarah Goggins, here with my husband, Derek Santola, who is the true political expert. Not unlike most mornings in our house, each episode, Derek surprises me with a key political issue that he is overprepared to discuss while I ask the hard-hitting and often awkward questions until I either understand or tire him out on the topic. So, Derek, what are we talking about today? The dynamics and parliamentarian tricks that are going on behind the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that is President Biden's marquee policy agenda. Let's get into it. I don't know what half those half those words mean. Right. So you probably heard on the news that President Biden has um, supported this massive spending deal that would, amongst other things, issue rounds of $2,000 stimulus checks, raise the federal minimum wage from its current seven seven and a quarter to a $15 federal minimum wage, uh, in addition to issuing federal and local money support states and localities. It would also re-up the unemployment insurance dividends that are being paid to those that are impacted by the COVID pandemic. Okay, this might be where you're going with this, but I thought that it was only $1,400 worth of stimulus checks and the parliamentarian said nah nah to the minimum wage situation. Yeah, so there's a couple of things there. So the first thing that I want to talk about is specifically the $15 minimum wage. Okay. Before we get into that, can you tell me what a parliamentarian is? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't understand this concept. So both houses, the House of Representatives as well as the Senate, has a an office that's dedicated specifically to understanding the rules of order. So both chambers, in addition to being under the, the auspices of the Constitution, they also abide by the rules that are set out by the members. So every Congress, there's certain rules that are adopted, and the office of the parliamentarian is the one that's in charge with making sure that everything that happens in both chambers is in accordance with those rules. Do people know who, like, do we know who the parliamentarian is? Does it change with the leadership, or is it like a, a nonpartisan, apolitical situation? They're support staff members. They're not well-known individuals like some of the high-profile politicians that populate those chambers. They are supposed to be nonpartisan, and they serve at the pleasure of the the House, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, as well as the Majority Leader of the Senate. So they're not your rock stars, but they become very important in certain instances, like the what we're dealing with here. So set the background for me. What happened? So. A bill was introduced to in both the House and the Senate to ensure that this massive spending deal would go through. The House, which is as a majority of Democrats and not subject to a filibuster, was able to pass the bill on party lines. Okay. However, when you get to the Senate, you run into the filibuster. We'll talk about the filibuster and we'll also talk about a process called budget reconciliation. So the filibuster is one of those Senate rules that requires 60 senators to vote on something called cloture. So cloture basically means we're going to vote to stop talking about this and we're going to move it to a vote to pass this bill. So bills 
can yeah. only go to the floor for a vote if there's six people, 60 if, people who agree to take it to a vote. If they overcome the filibuster. Was this fully in place during the Trump era? Like, 60 people always voted to take things to the floor? Right. That's why things are so difficult to get through the Senate. So the Senate is known as the, uh, the senior chamber within Congress. It's known as being this parliamentarian body that is, is known for being slow and deliberate. Part of the reason it's known for being that is because of this requirement of having to get 60 senators to vote on something. However, in such a gridlocked, partisan Washington, D.C. that we currently are living under, it's, it's incredibly difficult to get 60 senators to grant anything. And now we have a, a perfectly deadlocked Senate, 50 Democratic senators, 50 Republican senators. And so in order to get those 10 additional votes, it's basically a non-starter, unless it's on something that seems to be pretty bipartisan, usually... Uh, bills in, involving veterans' rights tend to get 60 votes. Okay, Some, I don't mean to be dumb, but, like, did re- Democrats give... I mean, Republicans didn't have 60 people in the Senate before this election. They only had, like, what, a three- or four-person majority. So for all those annoying things that we would see on the news about Senate votes, Democrats voted to put that to the floor? So there are certain things that were not subject to the filibuster. Like what? Well, something that the Trump administration was fantastic at achieving was the nomination and confirmation of federal district court judges. That goes back to when Harry Reid was the majority leader of the Senate. He invoked what was called the nuclear option, mm-hmm. which meant that the, se- that the filibuster would not apply to the confirmation of federal judges. Mitch McConnell took it one step further and said that the filibuster would not apply to Supreme Court judges meaning that these judges who lear- who serve lifetime tenure would not be subject to anything more than a party-line vote. Whatever party had power since 2014 has been the Republican Party. That's why you saw so many judges get confirmed. But to your broader point, if you look at the Trump administration's accomplishments, a lot of those things were not done by being passed through legislation. A lot of things were done through executive orders, which is when the president signs a document that has been authorized from previous passage of law, but it doesn't require another round of getting passed through Congress. So the filibuster seems to be a major issue um, for getting anything through the Senate, even with a slim majority like the Democrats currently have. So that's why you're gonna. That's why they're looking at something called budget reconciliation. Okay. Budget reconciliation was created by the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. So this was a statute that allow that allows for expedited consideration of certain Article One enumerated powers for Congress. So Congress has absolute power to tax and spend for the general welfare of the United States. What this does is removes the requirement of having to get 60 senators to vote to enact legislation within the Senate and only requires a simple majority. So under budget reconciliation, the Democrats having 50 votes with Vice President Kamala Harris serving as the tiebreaker, they could get this legislation passed through the Senate with not a single Republican vote. However, 
not everything can be captured under budget reconciliation. So there are certain things, I'm like I said before, taxing, Tax spending, spending. Where does minimum wage fall? I and guess. debt limit legislation. What is debt limit legislation? Debt limit legislation would be to... Raising the debt limit. The it debt would ceiling? raise the debt ceiling to... Oh, I knew something. Look at me. And for those that are listening at home, the debt ceiling is how much money the federal government owes. China. Well, China, <laughs> but, but other parties. I mean, it's well into the trillions, but there's no constitutional requirement, unlike some states, there's no constitutional requirement of the federal government not have any federal deficit at all. The last time we had a surplus was under the Clinton administration in the early 90s. So it's been a long time since we haven't had a debt limit. But to focus primarily on budget reconciliation, lawmakers have enacted 21 budget reconciliation bills since 1980. And that was the first year that they were allowed to do that. Have any of them been related to wage a lot of the times what they're used to do is deficit reduction and then tax cuts. So going back to Ronald Reagan, he used the budget reconciliation progress to push through deficit reduction packages during the 80s and 90s. In addition, he also was able to get a welfare reform in 1996 was passed during using budget reconciliation, and that was under President Clinton. Okay, maybe we need to have a separate podcast on deficit because I don't want to get stuck in a rabbit hole. Okay, how does one just reduce the deficit? Because I can't just get rid of my debt by saying, okay, here's a new bill. We don't owe you money anymore. Because if that's the case, I would like to do one of those. Um, <laughs> we'll save that for another okay, podcast. Because so I feel like I have a lot of follow-up questions on the deficit. Yeah. I'm trying to keep us laser focused on just budget reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Marching forward again, like I mentioned, tax cuts are, are very uh, popular, especially under very, Republican very president. Very clear cut. You can do that under budget reconciliation. Bush did it twice in 2001, 2003. Trump did it again in 2017. Interestingly, the Affordable Care Act, which had to modify um, the federal student loan program, was passed in 2010 can they act- under budget reconciliation. Oh, I'm definitely going down a rabbit hole. Can the budget reconciliation at 50 Democrats wave away my student debt? Awesome. We'll pick Thank that up on you. another one. Oh, come on. We'll pick that up on another okay, one. Okay, I feel like you're bearing the lead. I'm not the Senate why, parliamentarian. Why can't the minimum wage fall under the criteria? Why doesn't the minimum wage fall under the criteria to be handled through budget reconciliation according to the parliamentarian? Unpartisan position. It's currently filled filled by Elizabeth McDonough. And last week, Elizabeth McDonough heard arguments from both Democratic and Republican lawmakers about whether the proposal met the strict standards for deficit effects needed to include it in the process. And what are the strict standards? I guess, what are the arguments? Effectively, the Democrats are saying that this will have a positive impact on the deficit over the the 10 years that it's going to be phased in and the republicans are saying that that it's not at all it, it doesn't affect it and it's not well categorically that's not true the more money you make the more taxes you owe so unequivocally if you make more money per hour the government also gets their cut i mean i think the democrats could have used you going up in front of uh, miss mcdonough 
I mean, I don't know if that's too one you know one degree too far, but it, it's very clearly impacts the deficit. The more money people make, the more taxes the government collects. It seems that that doesn't ring yeah. true to okay. Miss McDonough. So, because it's not going to be able to get passed through reconciliation, the senators are going that that are trying to get the fifteen dollar minimum wage passed are going to Plan B. Some of the proposals that have been pushed out by budget chairman Senator Bernie Sanders, as well as leading Democrat from Oregon, Ron Wyden, is that they would have a penalty for major corporations that do not provide their uh, lowest wage workers with the $15 minimum wage. There'll be a federal penalty that'll go along with it. Other proposals have been floated. So in order to circumvent the filibuster, it also isn't just a block of 60 Republicans that are uh, facing this $15 minimum wage. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kristen Sinema from West Virginia and Arizona, respectively, both moderate Democrats, some would even say that Joe Manchin is conservative, have both come out to say that $15 minimum wage does not make sense for the country at large, and then they would stand in opposition to that proposal and in exchange have offered perhaps a $11.50 or $12 minimum wage in lieu of the $15 escalation. I would love for them to... NBC, I know you're listening because of all five viewers, the head of NBC is obviously listening. Um, I would like a new reality TV show where former uh, legislators have to live on $7.25 an hour um, and then we can all just watch them on television really just thriving at that terrible, abysmal minimum wage rate. Um, trademark, copyright, all the fancy words, dibs on this idea, call me NBC. Because this is ridiculous. It's not that, I just don't understand. We're parsing $4. Those $4 make a very big impact in different parts of the country. And I agree with you. I think the prevailing public support is behind the $15 minimum wage. We have not kept up with inflation, but the argument against it goes that it's going to crush small businesses in a time when they are already struggling due to the coronavirus pandemic. Okay, but then the counter argument is businesses are taking advantage of employees, paying them below poverty, keeping people below the poverty rate instead of paying them a livable wage so that they can stay in business. So which is worse? Allowing companies to stay open, but keep people in poverty, or encourage people to be lifted out of poverty by paying them a, a, a wage. I just don't feel like that's a fair argument. And also, since when does it have to be a zero-sum game? Like, when it came to, like, Obama's, let's put calories on all the food so I feel bad about myself. Why can't, if you have X amount of employees, you have to pay $15 minimum wage, and then it's tiered down from there? So if you have eight employees, you can pay $11 an hour. But there's zero reason these massive corporations shouldn't be able to afford $15 an hour. Right, so I think you would fall into the sanders widen camp about the penalties for massive corporations that aren't paying their employees a livable wage. I I think, think it Why is it called a penalty? Like, why can't we just it'll have... Be, it'll be a tax penalty. But no, no, okay, but the, the tax penalty goes to who? The government? Yes. That doesn't hurt. So they can still not pay their employees and the government benefits? It's Everyone a, but the employee benefits on the penalty. It's a stick provision. 
if you don't want to get hit with more taxes, then you pay your employees more money. Or just pay your employees and pay your taxes and stop being terrible people. Anyways, let's get back to the reconciliation okay, process, sorry. which was the point of this podcast to begin with. So, Didn't realize this was a hot button issue for me. I'm sorry about yeah, the reconciliation. No, it's, it's spicy. So what roles do the committees play during this, this whole process anyway? So, which committees? So the budget committees, respectfully, in the Senate and the House. Copy that. So reconciliation directives uh, instruct that the House and Senate committees prepare and report legislation by a certain date. Um, That does one of the more of the following. It either increases or decreases spending, increases or decreases revenue, or modifies the public debt limit. Again, these are the thresholds. So there's this reporting provision that the committees have to... Okay, I understand how that's gray area then. And then specifically the budget committees, so if multiple committees receive a reconciliation instruction, so if there are pieces of a bill that will be parsed out to different committees, there's the banking committee, there's the finance committee, there's different committees that will have jurisdiction over different areas of the bill, they would then send their recommendations to the House or Senate budget, which then assembles them into an omnibus bill for full House or Senate consideration. So that omnibus bill is what the House voted on and is now currently pending in the Senate. It's also really important for the duration of a Biden administration and for the rest of this year, quite frankly. So under Senate interpretations of this Congressional Budget Act, you can only pass one bill through budget reconciliation. That's why they tend to be pretty massive overhauls. So interestingly, in 2017, however, Congress was able to take up an additional reconciliation bill by passing two budget resolutions, one for fiscal year 2017, which was already underway at the time, and then one for fiscal year 2018. So effectively, they were able to get two in one. Okay. Just important tactically for the Biden administration moving forward. And then one other thing that I wanted to talk about that I felt was important was something that Hill insiders are referring to as a bird bath. So the bird rule, which was named after its chief sponsor, Larry Bird of the Boston Celtics, (laughs) another West Virginian, the late Senator Robert Bird. Yeah, him too. It allows senators to block provisions of reconciliation that are extraneous or unnecessary to reconciliation's basic purpose of implementing budget changes. You about to tell me that an increased minimum wage is superfluous? It's not even in the bill. So I'm telling you that there might be other things that might be peeled out under a Byrd rule. So Byrd was adopted and modified during the 80s and then finally included in the Congressional Budget Act in 1990, the year your boy was born, with only minor changes since then. And some have criticized it for excluding too much from reconciliation, such as provisions that might help reduce costs, but for which specific savings estimates cannot be provided, or provisions that would help make cost-saving changes work better. It's a very blunt instrument, and it applies only to action by the Senate, But because senators may invoke it during consideration of a conference report, again, once the bill is passed by the Senate and then it is issued for a conference between the Senate and the House, uh, it effectively constrains the House by limiting what the House can ultimately insist upon when compromising with the Senate. So 
quick rundown of what's been birded out of a budget reconciliation. I see what you did there. Increases of spending or decreases of revenue if the provision in question results in the committee's portion of the bill costing too much or saving too little. So if it's not enough or if it's too big, it, it's deemed to not be within the jurisdiction of the committee reporting the provision. And it raises deficits in any year after the period covered by the reconciliation instruction unless other provisions recommended by the same committee fully offset those, quote, out your costs. And then finally, changes to Social Security retirement, survivors, or disability programs. So it can be a very blunt instrument, cutting out a lot of programs and policies that a Biden administration and a Democratic Congress would try to get through with this massive bill. So in summary, $15 minimum wage is, doesn't even qualify for budget reconciliation, so you're going to need 60 votes to get on that. If we don't kill the filibuster. And with Manchin not wanting to play and Cinema potentially not wanting to either, $15 minimum wage seems like it's dead on arrival, pending this penalty idea that we discussed. Secondly, the rest of the bill, which includes the direct stimulus payments, whether it's $1,400 or sometimes less, might get birded out. And then other provisions that are part of this $1.9 trillion deal face either being birded out or being lost during reconciliation where the House and the Senate sit together and make their bills, which may be different or the same. This is very depressing. So with all that said, a long road ahead still for the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that is supported by the Biden administration. I'm displeased. I just don't feel like this should be controversial. We have so much we can fight about. What is the harm? Like, I just don't see how this is partisan. There's plenty for us to disagree on. I just feel like paying people a livable wage isn't a spicy topic. I don't approve of wealthy lawmakers literally drawing the poverty line with their pen. So a, a bit of uh, sunshine as it pertains to $15 minimum wage. Major corporations like Amazon are already backing in $15 minimum wage. That's wonderful. And then states, states as the incubators of democracy are also leading the way by enacting these $15 minimum wage. It's just when the federal minimum wage remains at $7.25, states don't have to go up any higher than that. That's so bonkers. again, it depends on where you live and Folks, uh, elections matter. So you got the people in the office. Now, if you have any issues, call your elected representatives and get put them to work. With that, we'll wrap the show.